Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for making the effort to uh, come out this morning for yourself and uh, for your for your kids. How many have uh, how many have children among you? Um, I'm assuming everyone does. How many have uh, uh, your children are below the age of 13? Okay. Now I know you may have both. How many have some that are above the age of 13? All right. <laughs> it sounds like you guys all have a lot of kids. Canadians love to make kids. Uh, and I'm a Canadian. So I, yeah, just a little bit of background. Uh, I'm actually uh, kind of raised most of my life in Calgary, uh, my, at least my teenage uh, young years, I guess. And I moved to uh, the United States in 1984. I've been there ever since, doing uh, all kinds of ministry from student ministry to, uh, we did a television broadcast for about 10 years, uh, missionary work, pastoring churches, and today uh, our full-time work is uh, helping men, marriages, ministers, and young people come out of uh, addiction, and specifically sexual addiction, uh, pornography addiction, and it is a full-time job in the church right now. Uh, I think that it is the number one enemy uh, in the church because it is so subtle and it is so hidden. I call it the carbon monoxide of the church. Uh, you don't see it. You don't uh, really hear it talked about that much. This is one of the few churches, uh, I think, that is brave enough to confront the issue and, and uh, be honest about the issue, talk to parents, talk to men, uh, marriages about it. But it is like a carbon monoxide that is just slowly destroying so many people in the church. And unfortunately, our young people are experiencing the brunt of it more than ever because they're isolated. They don't know what to do with it. It is so prominent. It is so accessible. And so many uh, pastors, youth pastors, parents, educators, teachers either don't know what to say or are afraid to talk to them about it, or if they get in the conversation, they don't really know what, what to do about it. And then, frankly, uh, one, of the, one of the struggles, and I, I grew up with this, is uh, especially for, for men who are fathers, uh, we've had our own struggles. Uh, it's no secret that uh, about 90% of men, uh, at some time in their growing up as, as young men and as they've moved into whatever, adulthood, middle age, that they've, they've encountered uh, the issue of pornography, and they've struggled with lust. It is a, uh, a very common struggle. So uh, when you're struggling and when it's, you know, uh, become either a part of your life uh, or something that you're not sure that you're conquering that well, it is really hard to talk to your children about it. So it's just, it's just this thing that I think we've, we've just got to get open about it. And this morning, I am not here to preach at you. I'm not here to... Uh, you know, to tell you you're doing a bad job or to even provide every single answer that you need. Uh, parenting is a tough thing. And uh, I found that our children can be parented in different ways with different methods. Uh, ultimately, we look to the scripture, but every kid is unique and uh, every family situation uh, is unique. And so, I'm not coming to you as the expert and, man, I'm going to solve all your problems and, 
and I know more than you. There's lots of you in here that probably know as much or maybe even more than me in some areas. And so I look forward to this being more of a conversation. And, and yet I am going to share some things that I think will be super, super helpful. Uh, I've been doing this, working with teenagers for a long time. Both my own kids who are now in their 30s and then, of course, teenagers that I've discipled and worked with uh, going back 20, 25 years. And the beautiful thing is those kids that uh, were in our youth ministry, they, I still have a relationship with so many of them, uh, still you know, partnering with them and, and discipling and, and helping them to, uh, to live well. And I've learned a lot of things. I know I don't look like uh, a 61-year-old man, but I am. I know I look more like 70, but, uh, but uh, no. So I, I've just had a lot of experience. And I've learned from experience probably more than, more than books. I mean, I've read a lot of books. I've done a lot of study. I've been through sexual addiction uh, 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 training and, and courses, all of that. But I, I think I'm going to bring some experience uh, that'll be helpful for you today. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to sp spend about 30, 40 minutes in this first session just kind of walking through uh, a few things and doing some introduction and getting into a little bit of meat. And we're going to take a break, uh, refill coffee, you know, uh, go to the restroom, whatever, come back and uh, cover the last part and then do some Q&A at the end. So as you're listening today and you're kind of you know, putting things together, if some questions are coming up, I don't care what they are, how difficult the question may be, even if it's a challenging question towards me, I want you to be free to do that and ask the tough questions, all right? And we'll do our best to together in this conversation to answer those or at least say, okay, we need to, we need to figure that one out. Maybe we don't have it figured out. So we need to figure it out. So a lot has changed since I was a teenager, and for some of you especially that are older, I'm not looking specifically at anyone here right now, but uh, a lot has changed since we were teenagers. I grew up in the 70s. 70s was an awesome decade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Woo. So, you know, bell-bottom jeans, mullets, uh, Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, all, all that kind of stuff. And it was really the 70s was kind of the beginnings of like a sexual revolution in North America. Uh, sex was being talked about for the first time. Uh, and you could go back to the 60s, make a case for the 60s as well, but for the first time in things like rock and roll, uh, movies, one, one book that was super prominent in the 70s, one of the best-selling books was The Joy of Sex. Uh, and teenagers were beginning in, in the 70s uh, to really experiment with sexuality uh, in, our, in, our, in our culture. But check this out, 1960, half of 19-year-old women who were unmarried, half had never had sex, 19 years of age, half. By the late 80s, that number was now two-thirds by the age of 18. Today, outside of really solid Christian upbringings, it's almost expected that by the time you're 18, like you're looked upon as weird if you haven't had sex yet. That's a lady, a young lady, 18, young man. So I grew up in that 70s, and by some miracle, uh, I got married when I was 20 years of age, and I was still a virgin. And I remember hearing my pastor, I got saved when I was 16, and my pastor in Calgary, 
uh, and my youth pastor, both were discipling me around sexual purity. And one of the things uh, that they told me, they said, Blaine, if you will save yourself for marriage, sex will be amazing. It'll be way, way, can we talk about sex? Is it okay, everyone? No one's getting uncomfortable, you know, okay. So, because we have to. So, uh, if you'll save yourself for marriage, sex as a Christian man, once you do get married, because you saved yourself and you waited, will be amazing. It'll be awesome. And, and so, I got married at 20, and it wasn't awesome. It was, it was really awkward, and we weren't prepared for it because our pastor, that's all he said. He didn't talk about how it would be awesome or talking about values or expectations or what it looked like. And I mean, it's a complicated thing. I think we'd all agree with that. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of nuances and, and, uh, and little things that need to go right, right, for, for sex to work, right? And, and it wasn't working for us. And expectations with my, my wife, my bride, and myself were completely different. She had her ideas of what it would look like, and I had my ideas. And unfortunately, I had a lot of friends in my uh, high school who were unsaved, who were having sex and talking about it, you know, after every weekend, and, and probably exaggerating, you know, what had happened with their girlfriends. And so I'm like, man, this sounds outstanding. I can't wait. And then it wasn't. And it was nobody's fault. It was just that we didn't know. And back in the 70s, of course, no one was talking about it in the church. Counselors weren't a thing. And so we just kind of agreed to be at odds about it and agreed to like, I guess this isn't going to be that great or isn't going to work. And so I got frustrated. She was frustrated. I got bitter. I got angry. Uh, She was bitter. She was angry. And we just kind of coexisted as a married couple when it came to that area. I mean, we, we did our best to parent our kids and to be good pastors and leaders in the church, but when it came to sexuality, I mean, it was just kind of like we checked that box and said, okay, that's not going to work, or at least not going to work well. And so over time, uh, well, I'll tell you what happened. I guess it would have been about six, seven years later, I'm in a hotel room. Now, I'd, I'd never seen porn in my life, friends. Uh, knew about it. Had lots of friends who talked about it. Had lots of friends whose dads had magazines, because that was the only porn back in the 70s. Uh, and they would talk about finding their dad's magazines, but my dad didn't have any. And I knew that because I looked everywhere. I was like sneaking around under the bed in the drawers. He had nothing. He was clean. And uh, so I had never, you know, seen porn. Pre-internet, right? So 1988 comes along. And I'm now, I'm a Christian. I'm actually a, a preacher traveling, doing mission work, doing conferences, doing, you know, Sundays at churches, going literally gone every weekend, uh, speaking, and then coming home and taping television shows during the week. 
And after a couple of years, of, actually several years of this, I found myself just exhausted. I wasn't really taking care of my soul. I was frustrated in my marriage. And I'm sitting in a hotel room one night. I'm flipping channels, going to news, sports, a good movie, whatever, just trying to wind down from the weekend and going to fly out the next, the next morning. And all of a sudden, I see a white box on top of the television. And I knew what that white box was. It was pretty much in every hotel room I stayed at, and I'd been in hundreds. It was what they called an adult movie box, which is basically just words for pornography. And so for whatever reason, my resistance level that night was, was just, I was defenseless, I felt. And I, I think looking back, I felt some entitlement, like I deserve, you know, a sexual experience, or, uh, or maybe it was curiosity, or maybe it was just, uh, you know, I, I just need a break. I don't know all of what it was, but for whatever reason, I, I felt defenseless that night. And I got up and I hit that red button. And on came all this imagery and, and uh, things that I'd never seen before. And I felt two competing emotions. I mean, I felt this, wow, this is incredible. And then there was like, oh, this feels incredibly shameful. And I finally turned it off, and I made the worst decision ever in my life at that moment. And, and the worst decision was not hitting the red button. It was going down to the front desk, finding the clerk, and saying, I want to pay for my movie. And the reason I wanted to pay for my movie was because... I was staying as a guest with a church, and I knew they'd see the bill. And so it was the beginning of what would become, I didn't know at the time, but 23 years of covering up a addiction that took over my life over time. Didn't start out that way. I said I'd never do it again. I remember praying the next morning, looking at scripture, asking God for help, and I went six months and never did it again. But six months later, bang, again. And then it was three months, and then it was two months, and then it was a month, and then it was weeks, and then it became, at some point, like literally a daily addictive stronghold in my life. And it took me down an awful road. I don't have time to tell you the road, but uh, especially for guys, this would be a great read for every guy in this, in this place. Uh, really any guides in the church. It's just my story. It's not preaching. It is my story with what I learned from it. It's called Death by a Thousand Lies, my cover-up, my crash, and my resurrection out of sexual addiction. And it's really written to men, for men. Uh, the chapters are like three to four pages long. That's, that's a man's book, because the first thing I do when I read a book is I go ahead to see how long the chapters are. And if they're like 20 pages, I just get discouraged. I'm like, I'm never even going to get through one chapter uh, tonight. So they're really short, easy to read. It's told in a story. But guys, uh, this will arrest every part of your being in terms of where it can take you. And I document where it took me and, and the slow burn of lust uh, in my life and how it eventually would 23 years later, destroy my marriage. And it was all 
by God's terrifying grace exposed when I was 49 years of age. Can you imagine that? 28 years of age, and then 23 years later, it's all exposed. So when I look back at how hard and how difficult it was to find a resurrected life out of that brokenness and lose my family, lose relationship with my, my, my children, um, lose my career, ministry, lose, we went financially devastation, foreclosure, uh, loss of all of our, our savings. Uh, it was just such an awful, awful period. And I thought, if I could just go back to the red button scenario, if I could just go back and have known what to do. And what I needed was somebody to come into my life or somebody that I trusted enough to say, this is a problem and I don't know what to do with it. And I need somebody I can trust that you're not going to rat me out. You're not going to condemn me. You're not going to look down at me with eyes of judgment, but that you will walk me through how to get free from this and I'll feel safe with you. That's desperately what I needed. And when it was finally uh, disclosed, I found out there were people like that. I found wonderful men and wonderful churches and people and counselors that walked me through resurrection and helped me to understand uh, what it would take to find purity and what it would take to find nobility and virtue again in my life. And, and, and this is a miracle that, I, that I'm here today. I mean, when I was sent to rehab uh, in 2010, I got into rehab, and there's a 73-year-old sex addiction expert who is one of the founding, kind of founding fathers of sexual addiction. This guy's amazing, Dr. Ralph Earl. And he runs this rehab, and thousands of people uh, have been through it, and he sat me down, he heard my story, and he said, Blaine, you are out of control. You're like the poster child for sexual addiction. I've never heard a story like this, and I doubt you will ever get free. And, and, and that was after I'd written a check for $30,000 to go through 30 days. And the reason he said that is he said, I've never seen anyone stay in this world so long and hide it so well and then go so far down this rabbit hole. I just said, I, I just doubt you'll ever get free, but we'll give you the tools if you want to try. And, and so I stand today, not because of Blaine Bartell, but because of the grace of God, the resurrection of Jesus, and God's good community that has surrounded me. I stand today as a man that has been free without relapse, without ever going back to it for more than a decade. That's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And so my passion has been to help men, help men in ministry, help marriages and help young people uh, find freedom, and really with young people to prevent them from ever going down this road. So, questions so far? Because, again, this conversation, not, not lecture. We good? I do have four children. Uh, my, my, my fourth is a, is a uh, beautiful daughter that I inherited when Lori and I married eight years ago. So, anyways, I forgot to tell you that. All right, so... 
let's talk about first how Jesus addressed the sexual issue. Because I think uh, I went at trying to help my kids overcome their struggle with pornography when they were in their teens the wrong way. So I remember one of the most uh, heart-wrenching moments in my life. I walked into my middle son's, uh, it was actually a family room area, and there was a family computer there. We didn't allow our kids to have technology, you know, secretly in their rooms or anything like that. This is before, uh, this would have been before smartphones, but it was internet age. And so there's family computer. I, I walk into the family room. My middle son, who is 14 at the time, is sitting at the computer. And the computer was always set up where you could see it when you walked into the room. And I could see what he was looking at, and it wasn't good. And, as soon, and I kind of quietly walked into the room, walked up behind him, and I said, you know, Dylan, what are you looking at? And he quickly slammed the, the laptop closed and he was so ashamed and he began to cry he said dad I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I so I was so I opened it up I checked the history and I found out where he'd been and what he'd been looking at and I was just so angry not at him I was I was angry at the culture I was angry at the fact that this is so easy for a kid to just find it. I mean, when you think about it, I don't have my, my phone with me. I don't know where I put it. Is it right there? Thank you. When you think about pornography, think about this, that you couldn't access it until you were 21 before the internet. You couldn't buy a magazine. You could not you know, go into a, a, a video store and rent a video unless you were 21 years of age. So just like we have, you know, we, we, we have uh, age limits for driving and age limits for buying alcohol and age limits for all kinds of things because we know our kids can't handle certain things until there's a, a level of maturity, that was the same with pornography. But then all of a sudden, internet blows up around 2000, becomes completely accessible to who? Everybody. Can you imagine? This smartphone right now has the ability to download or to access not millions, but up to a billion images or videos. There are so many porn suppliers today, it is just unbelievable. And, there, and most of them are free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to, you know, like have an account or anything. They're just everywhere including social media. I mean, you can Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you can find it everywhere. And even if it's not full-on pornography on those social uh, sites, they have links that will take you there. And so we went from no access at all for our kids to unlimited access. We wouldn't do that with anything else. Anything else. I mean, if, if our phones had the ability to produce alcohol and drink it, we would be outraged as parents. I mean, we'd be like storming the government saying, this cannot happen. I can't have my kids being able to drink 
out of their phone. If they were able to smoke or do drugs with their phone, we would be outraged. But somehow, this just slid right by. We just let it happen. And it's brutal. And it's destroying our kids. And here's, here's the truth. The porn industry, the reason they're going after our kids is they want addicts by the time they're 18. They want that kid to be absolutely bound and captive to their world because they will get clicks and they will get visits the rest of their adult life, which will make millions of millions of dollars for them. And we know that, you know, websites today don't need subscriptions to make money. It's all clicks. How many clicks? And they can sell advertising with clicks. So that's their goal. They're, they're just money makers. The income for pornography today is uh, larger than the NFL, the uh, NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It is so, so crazy. And guess what age the average boy, I'm not sure about girls, it may be a bit, just a bit higher, but the average boy sees porn for the first time at age 11. Most of the guys that I'm coaching today in their 30s and 40s talk about, I was 10, I was 9. By the time I was 15, I couldn't stop because they grew up in, in the Internet age. And so we have to admit that, figure out that probably if, you're, if your son or daughter is in their mid to late teens, I would encourage you to assume they've at least seen it that somebody has showed it to them, that somehow they've come across it. And so this is how, this is how Jesus addressed the issue of uh, sexuality. And he did it in his very first sermon, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, first sermon in the Gospels that we see. There might have been one before that wasn't recorded, but this was the first one that was recorded uh, and immediately in the first few verses or first few sentences of this sermon, he goes to the issue of sexuality. And what does he say? He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. All right? Or, you, sh you know, that you should not sexually violate somebody else's uh, marriage or allow your marriage to be violated. He said, but I tell you, that if you commit adultery with intention with another woman or another man in your heart, you've already sinned. And it sounds like Jesus is raising the bar. It sounds like all of a sudden now, adultery's gone from uh, a sinful physical act to a sinful physical thought. It's like, man, if I just think about it now, I'm, I'm done. And, and so for those guys or people that have struggled with that, it's like, man, I don't even have a chance. But I don't think it was Jesus like making it harder for us to obey. I don't think it was him necessarily raising the bar and saying, okay, man, you, you really got to come through now. You can't even think about it. By the way, just the thought, just the temptation is not sin, if we can make that clear. Like, everyone will have thoughts. Ladies, please don't be surprised if your husband has been tempted by pornography or been tempted by lust. That's normal. 
any more than you've been tempted to buy way too much stuff on the credit card. Like, we all have temptations. There is, there's, we have impulses, and, and it's a part of our flesh, and it's a part of our, 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 our human makeup. It's a part of the fall of Adam and Eve and the sinful nature that we have. There will be temptation. And, and Jesus said that adultery wasn't, or that the, the thought of adultery wasn't sin, it was intention. He said, with intent, in other words, you're making plans in your mind. You're, you're engaging that thought. You're following through on that thought, all right? So here's what I think Jesus was saying in this. He said, if you've committed it, and he didn't even say mind, in your, he didn't say in your mind, he said in your heart. He said, if you've committed adultery in your heart, you've already sinned. Here's what I think he was saying. He was saying, I want your heart. If we're going to deal with this issue, it has to be an issue of the heart. And here's where the church has missed it with our kids and even with ourselves, is we've made it just a behavior issue. And we've tried to solve it with behavior solutions. And so... What have, we, what have we said in the church? Well, get an accountability partner. That will limit your behavior. Because surely if you meet with another guy once a week, well, you'll never sin again. Really? Like there's no other way around it? <laughs> like that'll solve all your problems? I'm not against that. I mean, I've got, I've got several men in my life that I meet with regularly. That's a part of my resurrection. It's an important part, but trust me, that could never be the only part. I remember went to a big conference back in the 90s, and this, uh, this speaker on, on pornography and sexual issues got up, and he's speaking to all these men. He said, guys, if you'll just wear a rubber band, a thick rubber band, and every time you have a lustful thought or temptation, pull that sucker back as far as you can, let it go, and let it hit your wrist. And you'll feel that pain, you'll associate the pain with sexual temptation, and all of a sudden you'll be free. <laughs> Solving behavior issues with behavior solutions didn't work. Just got a red wrist is all I got, all right? So we have to go beyond behavior to what Jesus said, I want you to go to the heart. I want you to go to the heart. See, if, if God can change the heart, if he can change the impulses, the internal, our behavior will follow. Because Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He came to change our heart, that if our heart could be changed and our heart could come to life and, and resurrection can happen in our soul, then all of a sudden we will have new impulses, we'll have different uh, behavioral desires, and we won't go back. I, I wake up today and I don't even think about porn because Jesus changed my heart. It's not, it's not even on my radar anymore because Jesus changed my heart. We'll talk about how that happens, but he wants to change the heart. And here's, here's where I missed it as a parent, trying to parent my, my kids in a sexualized culture, is I was parenting their behavior. I was parenting their minds as much as I could, trying to get them to think right and be in church and listen to their youth pastor and you know read good books. But I didn't know how to parent their heart. That internal, their soul. I wasn't asking the deeper questions. And part of the reason is I was afraid to. 
I was afraid of what I might hear. I was afraid of what I might have to share in my own life. I was afraid of confronting my own demons. But we have to parent the heart. We have to have those deep and those honest and those humble conversations with our kids and engage in those really difficult questions. So one of the first things I would encourage you to do as, as a parent is create uh, or let your child know that you have provided for them a safe and a sacred place for them to engage with you. That when they share what they're struggling with, that you won't freak out. And you won't immediately go to, well, you're grounded for, you know, six months. Or we're taking you, you know, in, in that very conversation. We're taking you, you know, out of that group or this group or that school or whatever. Because if, if our first inclination is, is to go to discipline and go to punishment and go to correction, we've missed the heart. I'm not saying some of those things don't need to happen. I'm not saying some of those things can't be explored and talked about because I, I do believe in boundaries and I do believe that there are things that, that we can do to protect our kids, but we can't go to that first. We've, we've got to go to the heart. And so we, we have to be able to say, listen, you can talk to me about anything. We can have conversations about whatever you're walking through, whatever you're dealing with, and ask those questions and say, listen, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, freak out or be surprised. Listen, I know this is happening. I know that kids are dealing with this. And so let's, Let's create a safe space. Also, I think it's important just as parents that we kind of understand the difference between what I call the Jesus sex ethic and the culture sex ethic, all right? So <clears throat> Paul basically describes the cultural sex ethic in, in Galatians uh, chapter 5. He says, I say then walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the flesh lusts after the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary to one another so that you do the things that you do not wish to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now check out what he lists as works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. The first four are all sexual acts. I mean, immediately goes to these things will destroy you. Then he goes, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. I think those are the results of the first four, <laughs> that if you are engaged in the first four, you're probably going to experience the next four. And then he goes back to outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, those who practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all these sexual struggles, let's talk about what they mean. Adultery uh, basically denotes one has un unlawful intercourse with the spouse of another. Fornication, it's a Greek word, interesting enough. The Greek word for fornication is porneia, which is where we get pornography. Uh, it means illicit or forbidden sexual uh, interaction 
uh, or intimacy or intercourse. Uncleanness is associated with unholy or sexually defiling one's body. Lewdness is baseness, disgrace, or obscenity, anything that's contrary to uh, purity. And revelries is making drunkenness and sex a sport where it becomes meaningless and self-indulging. So here's the cultural sex ethic. Our culture says this, men and women are what? We're just animals. We're not image bearers. We're not creation of God. Our bodies are just like animalistic, useful tools for sexual exploration. The body is accidental. Sex is strictly for pleasure. That's the ethic. It's all, all it is is pleasure. Love is a feeling. It's a desire. It's an impulse. It comes and it goes. Marriage is just a practical construct. Just kind of makes things simpler. And life is all for our happiness. So whatever makes you happy, go get it. That's the cultural sex ethic. The Jesus sex ethic looks like this. Men and women are image bearers of God. That we bear the spark of the divine. That we are more than just flesh and blood. That there's spirit that lives within us. The body is a holy temple from God. Sex is for family creation and intimacy and bonding in a marriage relationship. Love is an emotional, relational, holy commitment. Life finds meaning, not when we you know, strike at our own happiness, but life finds meaning when we give our lives away. So totally different ethics. And so Paul goes through Galatians, and he comes back to the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, if you want the Jesus sex ethic, if you want the Jesus life, then you're going to have to engage in this other stuff. Not the works of the flesh, but what he called the fruit of the Spirit. Or this, this stuff that we can actually grow in our life that will produce health and heart. And so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we engage in those nine fruits of the Spirit, it will absolutely destroy lust in our life. Because you can't be patient, and you can't be joyful, and you can't show sacrificial love, and you can't walk in peace, and you can't be faithful, and you can't be gentle, and you can't be a person of self-control and engage in lust. So the idea that Paul came uh, to us with is don't just try to stop lusting or don't just try to stop the works of the flesh, but develop the fruit of the Spirit. See, if you go to, what's your favorite steakhouse in, in Red Deer? Okay. Oh, the cake. Yeah, I love the cake. Great salad bar. So um, if you go to the keg, have your favorite steak, like I'm sure in Canada now a, a, a really good steak probably costs, what, 50 bucks? Yeah. So $50 steak, baked potato, all the trimmings on the salad bar, like just, just everything you wanted, and you walk out, and you're fully full of that great meal, and there is Ronald McDonald standing there with a Happy Meal saying, hey, how about this? How many know that's going to be an easy resist, an easy resist, because you are absolutely consumed with something better. The problem is if our lives and our young people and our hearts are not consumed with the fruit of the Spirit, with the goodness of God, with the Jesus life, we're walking around hungry, thirsty all the time. And I can tell you, if I've been on the road in a, you know, on a long trip and I haven't eaten for like six hours and I come across 
a restaurant and the only thing that's open is McDonald's, I'm going to tear that thing up. You know I'm going to get two quarter pounders, a Happy Meal, a bunch of Coke. Why? Because that's my only option at that point. And that's the way I think we're living in this world is we, we have a generation of young people and, and, and even in the church as adults where we're not being filled with the Jesus life. And so it gets really, really easy to give in to the sexual culture. So check this out. Why is sex important in marriage? Why should we fight for a healthy sexual life in our marriage? Why does the devil attack that area? Why do, why do almost every guy that I talk to when I'm coaching them out of sexual brokenness, why is their number one story is my wife and I grew apart? We just, you know, we just became friends. Uh, sexuality just kind of slowly diminished in our life. And that's easy to happen. Don't feel bad or guilty or awful if that's happened for you. That's actually quite normal. And there's reasons for that, and there's ways that we can change that. But how does that affect a marriage? Well, God designed sex to be glue and a bonding agent in our, in our marriage. That that intimacy would keep pulling us together. So, to seal the deal in our marriage, he created this. It's actually a bonding chemical called oxytocin. It's released during sexual experiences. And so sex is a gift that actually renews joy and steadfastness in a healthy setting in a marriage relationship biochemically. So pornography leads sexual desire towards an illusion rather than a person. All right? So the user develops what we call a consumer mindset, consuming images uh, of people rather than real relationships. And so men and women, as God's image bearers, do not deserve to be treated like objects or targets of lust. But here's the thing. We begin to bond with the screen. We still experience, you know, the, the, the sexual uh, chemical release of an orgasm, and all of a sudden our bonding agent is now a screen. And so this becomes what we love, and what we look for over time. And so God wants to help us to understand that we can either be enslaved to a screen or to a way of life that is lustful, or we can engage in a really healthy, joyful marriage relationship. So think about this. We'll close with this. One of the things that I did not understand about uh, lust and pornography for years was I thought that the only reason I was doing it and getting into that world was because I was just an evil, an evil man, an evil person. That I just was full of evil and full of lust and full of uh, the enemy and the devil, and it was just I was just giving into the devil's world, and, and that you can make a case for that, but I didn't understand something we call in the sexual addiction world, really in any part of the addiction world, as triggers. Now, I want you to think about this. We reach out to certain things because of triggers in our life. Some of us have struggled with food addiction, and when do we like to eat unhealthy or even overeat? 
when we have triggers. We're feeling, I need comfort, or I feel bad about myself, or I'm exhausted, and we just like, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I've been there. Uh, same with the drug world. You know, uh, why, do, why do men and women get addicted to, you know, some kind of drug, whether it's uh, a narcotic or it's a street drug or whatever? Why does that happen? Because there's stuff going on in their life that they want to escape from. Get me out of this feeling. I don't like it, and it feels better when I'm high. Well, here's the amazing truth about pornography is that it will produce the same biochemical high that cocaine will in the moment when they experience that, that orgasmic experience when they masturbate. And it's, it's exhilarating in the moment. And they don't forget it. And, the, and it feels like an escape, and it's like every problem left me in that moment. And think about a kid, or think about a man, or think about a woman that has felt constant rejection in their life. You know what the three greatest fears of every teenage boy, every man, and, and many, many women? The three top fears are, are, are rejection, insignificance, and failure. Rejection, insignificance, and failure. So men and women and teenage boys and girls live with those fears. Like, I'm not good enough. I failed. Uh, and, and it looks different for us that are older and different for, for our young people. And so what do we, what do, we do with those? We, we, we do one of two things. We either are healed and discover that we're beloved sons and daughters of the Father and we live into his acceptance and live into his goodness and live into his love and realize no matter how many times we fail, Jesus is there to pick us up. The Father still loves us. That we're really never rejected, even if we're rejected by a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife, a friend, a co-worker, that God never rejects us, that we always have a relationship with him, and that we're not insignificant, that we matter, that we are image bearers, that we're created by God for purpose in this world, that we have significance, even when someone tells us we don't. When someone else says you don't matter or you feel like you don't matter. But you see, if we don't, as, as adults, learn to go to God for our healing and our hope in those feelings, and if we don't help our young people to go to God in those areas, guess what? We're going to have this internal trigger of failure, rejection, insignificance, hopelessness, boredom, exhaustion, whatever. And we're going to be like, I need somewhere to relieve that. So might be a porn experience, might be a drug experience, might be an alcohol experience, might be a shopping experience, might be a food experience, might be a hundred other, might be a gambling experience, might be a hundred other things. But you have to either heal or you end up medicating. And so we have a, we have a generation of young people that are medicating. Did you know they've done studies now on teenage stress and kids that go to Public schools, in all of these studies, every one of them, have higher stress levels and fear levels than their parents. Because they feel so intimidated, they feel like they don't measure up, and social media has just profoundly sent that on a new trajectory. Because they're, what are they doing all day? They're like scrolling. 
And they're like, well, look what she did, or look what he's got, or look what, you know, look who they're hanging out with. And, and, and they, they just begin to feel this emptiness, like I'm not enough. And so you can only feel that, friends, for so long until you have to escape it somehow. You have to deal with that trauma. And so, wow, this experience, this 30-minute porn experience felt really good. Because in that moment, that person that I'm engaging with on that screen is accepting me, wants me, loves me, quote, is there for me, never says no, and can go away when I'm done and I can move on. And so whenever I get those heavy feelings, man, I'm just going to jump right back into that. And it just becomes an addictive cycle. And so part of our parenting is parenting through our kids' internal challenges. What, what are you feeling, man? How, how, it's not just talking about porn. It's like, how are you doing with your friends? How are you doing at school? Uh, you know, how, how's it going with your, with, with your coach? How's it going in sports? How do you feel about your relationship with God right now? How do you feel about us, you know? Is there stuff going on, you know, in, you know with your brother, your sister, with, with, with us as parents? Like, being able to discern and see where there might be a need for healing. I, uh, I've encountered so many parents and kids that parents did not even realize that their kids at some point had suffered some kind of abuse growing up. And it didn't happen in their home. Happened in a friend's home. Happened in, you know, a public place. Happened in a way that they never wanted to talk about it, never wanted to bring it up. And so having these deeper conversations, sometimes you'll you'll discover things you did not have a clue about with your, your kids. And if... God can bring healing where there's triggers, where there's hopelessness, where there's rejection, where there's pain and hurt, and Jesus can come in, and that's what he came to do, right? I mean, the first words out of his mouth when he announced his mission in Luke 4, he said, I've come to, what, heal the brokenhearted. He said, there's pieces and places in your life from your past that broke you, broke your heart, stole your innocence, stole your, your belief in, 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 in who you are. And he said, I want to heal that. He didn't come, you know, you would have thought the first thing he would have done is just come con- you condemned all of our sinfulness. You know, I'm too, you know, thousands of years after Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, finally God shows up in, in humanity as, as Jesus. Uh, and, and you'd think he would have just said, okay, I'm going to get you guys straightened out, man. You are messing up. No, he said, I know why you're messing up. I know why you're struggling. I know why you're reaching out to all this sin. It's because you, you're broke. I want to heal your heart. I want to deliver you from that captivity. I want, I want those wounds that you've lived with. I want, to, I want to wrap those wounds, and I want you to be well. So if we can not just engage in, again, behavior modification with our kids, but really parent the heart and really know, man, what, what is going on in your life? And here's what that's going to take, just some good conversations. Just some good, it's, it's not that hard, and you don't have to be perfect, and you don't have to get it done in one conversation. In fact, it will never get done in one conversation. We'll talk about, as we come back from the break, just some practical steps and tools and how we can make that, that happen. 
uh, on a regular basis, and then we'll do some, some Q&A. All right?